Well, guys, I want to thank you for tuning in to the Youth and Culture podcast, where youth ministry and culture collide. I'm your host, Ryan Sebastian, and I am joined with my co-host, David Pinkham. Man, it is good to be back on the horse. We had an interesting break over the summer, but it's good to be back. I know. I know. We took a, uh, what was it, two-month break. Uh, part of that has to do with, is that, of course, we're both youth minister, uh, full-time youth pastors, mm -hmm. uh, student pastors, and uh, summers are nuts. Summer's been busy for you and, and, and busy for me, and both of us have been busy, busy in different aspects and ways, uh, but I am glad to be on the podcast again this week. Yeah, me too. My uh, summer was raring and going and full force right up until we got back from camp. And then it all came to a screeching halt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why don't you explain to those who are listening what you mean by a screeching halt? Well, we went to camp. It was great. Great spiritual experience. Had some really good conversations with students. Saw the Lord move. And we got back from camp. And a day or two later, five of us came down with COVID. And <laughs> I was one of them. And uh, my wife had taken our four daughters out to grandma's house for cousin camp. So I was at home with my twin boys and I was in the total throes of COVID. Uh, I was sick as a dog. Uh, everything hurt. Everything was going wrong with my body. <laughs> it's just, it was a miserable experience. And I was still trying to keep twins alive. Uh, and then they ended up getting it, which I mean, you know, what can you do, right? Um, so they handled it much better than I did. And, uh, and then my wife ended up getting it and so did one of our daughters. So they came home. And so since like July 20th, um, somebody in our house has had COVID and we've had to be on quarantine, isolated from society. <laughs> and, uh, I have to wait until all of my family tests negative and then 10 more days of quarantine before I can go back to full-time ministry work. So I'm doing all of my work from home and um, and hiding away from people and trying to avoid being around the general public so that I don't spread it. Uh, it has been an interesting experience. So I'm really glad for things like Zoom and Zencaster and all of these other applications we can use so I can see people's faces. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, no, absolutely. We're, we're, and that's one thing, the reason why I love Zoom. Zoom is a phenomenal resource. So like like me and here right now, David, we, we talk mostly through Zoom. Mm -hmm. uh, right now we're using Zencaster to kind of talk and record. But uh, most of the time we're, we're talking and chatting through Zoom. And a lot of times we meet just to catch up to in between episodes. So I'm very thankful for technology, especially during COVID this last year. It's been a, it's been a blessing, but also in some ways it's been a curse. Uh, with with Zoom fatigue, so it's yeah. been a curse in that way. Uh, sometimes I get sick of using Zoom, but again, it's a, it's a blessing at the same time. I get to connect and 
uh, we get to connect and talk to. But uh, I'm really excited about this. And I know we, we talk about this year. Uh, what we mean is talking about this school year because a youth pastor lives in school year mode, not yeah. a physical year. Um, so I'm really, really excited about this school year, this season for our podcast to uh, we got a lot of great guests who are coming up uh, that I'm excited about and connecting with and a lot of great topics that we're going to talk about as well. But um, I was really excited to have the opportunity to talk to um, Will Hutcherson, uh, specifically on a book that he helped to co-author called Scene uh, that talks about, it's really engaging and really diving into this topic of, of teens dealing with depression, despair, anxiety, uh, and, and David, you know, cause, uh, this as well, that it's a very big issue among, uh, generation Z and they're, yeah. and they're thinking about that, that they're at least projecting that it may be even worse with gen alpha, mm. um, as well. So it is a real issue. I've dealt it with it in my ministry the last, uh, last seven to eight years. I've seen students, um, just struggling with anxiety even more. Um, I had a student, particularly the last couple of years, that dealt with so much social anxiety that he couldn't even stand in a room, a youth room, with a crowd of people where uh, he would have a panic attack. And he had to fight through that. And, and, and now, he's, now he's a totally different kid now. He's actually graduated. He's ministering in our, in our, youth, our youth ministry. That's awesome. Uh, but it's a, it's a real issue. It's a real issue that teens are, are experiencing and teens are dealing with. Yeah, and I think that's something that, uh, and, and we'll hear it in the interview today, but I, I think, uh, and we've said this before, I believe, I think the church is finally starting to wake up to the importance of mental health um, and, and not just treat it like, oh, you're a snowflake, go pray some more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That is true. <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever been called a snowflake. But, well, that's that's a relatively new term that's been used in probably the last four or five years. But basically, the the concept that I've always um, I've heard other people use, and I've heard churches approach mental health with just you know, well, you don't have enough faith, or you need to pray more, you need to do your devotions more, and and um, there's never an acknowledgement that there's like an actual problem. Um, they think it's just like a lack of faith, and while I'm sure to some degree that can play a part. Uh, I think it is important for us to look at um, some of the things that Will talks about in the in an interview today, and um, and take a look at it from an objective perspective, and not just uh, well, you have a lack of faith, so you need to grow. Well, guys, stay tuned for a conversation with Will Hutcherson. Well, guys, I am super excited about our guest this week. Uh, we're interviewing someone that um, actually I've been wanting to interview for quite a while. Um, I've heard him a lot with Orange and other organizations and got to he hear him speak a few times. And that is Will Hutchinson. And Will, you actually wrote you and I think her name is Dr. Kinway. Did I pronounce that correct? 
Yeah, close. Chinway. Chinway. Okay. Yeah. I, again, I'm terrible with names. Um, <laughs> but y'all two co-authored a book that I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, yeah. That as recorded, it now here's it's in the summer, it's in, in July, and it's going to be released later on this July. And uh, that's this book, Scene. But before we get into that, how about you introduce yourself a little bit, uh, your background and your journey in ministry and where you are today? Yeah. So I've been in ministry for about 15 years, whether I've been a student pastor, uh, more recently a next-gen pastor, so overseeing kids ministry, middle school, high school, and young adult ministry. Um, and uh, so, yeah, a, a big portion of my responsibilities as of recent years have been developing and helping um, kids pastors and youth pastors. Uh, I have three kids. I live in South Florida as well. My wife and I have an 11 year old, an eight year old, and a four year old. And um, yeah, so that's a little bit of my background. So, this, this book, Scenes, what, what led you and um, Dr. Chinway to actually write this book? What kind of led up to that? Yeah, great question. So, you know, if you work with kids and teenagers, then you know the last. Um, you know, 10 years or more, we've had this mental health crisis really taking place where we've seen an increase in depressive symptoms. We've seen an increase in anxiety. And um, the most heartbreaking statistic is in the last 10 years, we've seen suicide rates double among teenagers. And so in 2016, I was a, a next-gen pastor and I started to see more and more of my students were coming into my office, you know, dealing with anxiety, dealing with depression. And, um, and you know, my, my small group leaders were also kind of reporting back like, hey, so-and-so is dealing with this. How do I handle that? And parents were coming up to us and they were saying, hey, my kid's dealing with this. What do we do? And I remember just feeling this tension as a pastor. Like I have all these spiritual tools that are powerful tools, like prayer works, like prayer is powerful. There is power in Jesus name. Like there was all these good things. But when it came to the practicals, the practical like steps, um, it just felt very limited. You know, I, I, when I talked to um, mental health professionals or even, you know, Christian counselors in my church, and I asked like, hey, how do we handle this? The, the common answer was, well, refer them to counseling. So I thought that was a really good answer. Uh, so we started to find counselors that we trusted to refer kids to counseling. But then we ran into two other problems. And the first one was that counselors were getting overbooked. And so there were these long waits. And uh, the other issue was, you know, the, the financial, you know, ability for some families to be able to afford counseling. And if you're a youth pastor and you're listening to this, you've probably run into that same exact tension when you've tried to outsource to counseling. And so um, in 2016, seeing this issue, um, that honestly was just breaking my heart. I felt like God was really stirring my heart to do something about it. Um, I started a nonprofit and started to work with um, educators and counselors to find practical tools that we can empower parents and teachers and educators and youth pastors on how to help kids when they're dealing with despair. And uh, we found some really cool things, some really exciting things. So we started traveling the country and speaking in schools. Uh, doing, I do a school assemblies with uh, another guy named Malik. And um, this nonprofit is called Curate Hope. So curatehope.com if you want to learn more. Uh, but that, that started really um, 
after a whole lot of research in 2016, 2017, we launched Curate Hope in 2017 and have been doing that for the last three years. And that journey eventually led me to Dr. Chinwe Williams. She's another orange speaker. And so her and I started talking about, hey, what would it look like for us to put this in a book format? You know, some of these learnings and things that we've known about um, psychology and how the brain is wired and how God's wired our brains and how we can help influence healing when kids are dealing with despair or anxiety. Yeah, I do have to say, I, I do agree with the anxiety that on the rise. I, and um, I've talked a lot about on, on this podcast and other forums outside of here as well, is that uh, one thing I, I believe that leads to that, it's not, it's not the underlying issue, but it but it's definitely adds to, to the issue is the problem with kids being able to um, be able to relate with each other and actually have a physical relationship. Um, there's a big, to me, there's a big divide in culture in the last 10 to 15 years to where we've gone from a defining friendship, uh, from a physical one-on-one community, uh, to a digital, uh, whoever likes or shares of my post type, type of deal. Um, and a lot of it has to do with the invention of a smartphone and social media and things like that. Uh, but so I definitely agree when we're showing research from when, uh, the invention of a smartphone to we are, are now, there's actually been a slow uh, progress, uh, progression of, of high anxiety, suicide, all this is tied to depression, all this tied into that because the relationship aspect among teens is not the way, way it was before an invention of a smartphone. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, I, uh, hearing you talk about that, the relationship aspect among teenagers and how the digital world has kind of changed that. Um, it reminds me, you know, a few years ago, I would say probably five years ago, um, I actually disagreed with Reggie Joyner on this idea. And uh, he was talking about how, you know, pretty much there's always going to be this need for physical interaction. That's how mm-hmm. we're wired. And I remember kind of challenging it. And I remember saying like, but, but think about it. I mean, these kids have always known FaceTime. Isn't it possible that, yeah, maybe it's hard for us to develop authentic relationships in the digital space, but shouldn't they be maybe a little bit more naturally wired for that? Well, you know, that was kind of a big question I was trying to explore. Now that I've gone through and really done a lot of research in um, attachment and how we are wired and how our brains are wired and how we need human connection and how even like seeing one another, like face-to-face interactions, appropriate physical touch, how that influences the brain and leads us to places of safety and feeling seen and feeling felt. Mm. Like all of that is so needed. So uh, this, this is the first time I've told this story, by the way. So let me go on record and say <laughs> I was wrong. Reggie Joyner is always right. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's like uh, I had a conversation with uh, uh, Justin Herman. He was on, I had him on the podcast. So good night over right when COVID first started and hit. And part of my issue, we had a discussion about this as well, of how COVID is transitioning everything to digital uh, in, some, in some ways, and, and also how we do discipleship. Uh, I'm in the, in, under the ex- belief, again, I, I probably will be proving wrong, which is okay. Uh, I'll admit when I'm wrong, but I'm underneath the belief that you can't do effective discipleship strictly online. Um, I believe that you can do a you can do a little bit to a portion to a degree, but effective discipleship to me, I don't think you can do completely from a digital space. Um, again, 
I hope I'm proven wrong because it'd be awesome if I was uh, proven wrong because there's so much you can do digitally. I just have a hard time when I'm seeing the research specifically with students, seeing that being a hundred percent effective, which kind of leads into Alexa. What I, I want to ask you is, what are teens going through psychologically when they experience despair or depression? Yeah, great question. So, the way I like to kind of frame this up is, um, you know, this is a, one. This is a very complex issue. So. Uh, as we were even developing and writing uh, the book scene, uh, we were trying to figure out how to put a very complex organ and simplify it, you know. And so the best way that I could, you know, kind of simplify these functions and how God's wired our brains and how it responds in despair is I want you to imagine if you're listening, imagine there's two parts of your brain. You have the right side of your brain, the left side of your brain. And it might help maybe if you just hold kind of your hands out and kind of can see your hands like right side, left side. Your right side of your brain is where predominantly your emotional processing takes place. So this is where your amygdala is. If you remember from uh, high school or college, the amygdala is where your fight, flight, or freeze uh, takes place. Um, and then your left side is where a lot of your logical processing takes place. So um, you have these kind of two hemispheres of your brain. And in a healthy brain, you have processing going back and forth. You experience emotion, you logically process it, and, and vice versa. So it goes back and forth. Um, but when, when we experience despair, over time, cortisol, a stress hormone, drips and drips and drips and kind of floods the right side of our brain, and it can create a despairing. So imagine those two sides of the brain kind of detaching from one another, where the right side and the left side kind of detach. And... Um, the, the, the processing doesn't flip back and forth. And so what tends to happen is you have this emotional detachment. And this is one of the hardest things that a person can face. In fact, one uh, theologian called it the dark night of the soul um, because we're feeling all these, these emotional energies, but we're just not sure how to put it into words. That's what's happening in the brain. This is why oftentimes when you ask a teenager, how do they feel? They, they would say things like, I feel numb, or I don't know. I, I just feel all of these things. Um, that's because it's really difficult to take emotion and put it into language, because language is a, a logical processing, left side of the brain. Um, it's very difficult. But here's the cool thing. The cool thing is, is that uh, connection, specifically love and empathy, when we feel seen, and we feel that we're connected with someone else, it can actually promote healing and bring the two sides back together and decrease despair. And the reason why is if you dive into um, what research has found in terms of attachment, when we feel connected to face-to-face -to -face interaction, appropriate physical, physical touch, where somebody's helping us to take emotion and kind of pull it over to the, the left side of the brain, um, all of that despair decreases and it reroutes the brain back to, to early childhood when we felt safe and we felt nurtured and seen. And uh, when when person feels that way, all these other emotions and hormones start to flood, specifically uh, one called oxytocin. So oxytocin is a hormone that is an emotionally bonding hormone. And when we feel seen, when we feel connected, when we feel like someone understands us on a deep level, love and empathy, it actually uh, promotes oxytocin release, which decreases the cortisol release and brings those two sides back together. And the reason why bringing the two sides back together is so important. Another way that I like to 
explain this is when a kid is experiencing high anxiety or despair, it's like they've taken a big breath of emotional air and they're not able to exhale. So imagine, you know, taking a big breath of air and not breathing out for a while. I mean, your face would turn red, you'd start to shake, eventually you pass out, right? Or eventually it would just burst out. In the same way, when we get all this emotional energy that builds up and builds up and builds up and builds up and builds up, it's like it's just right there on the right side of the brain, that detachment's taking place. But when we can help a kid to go, they feel felt, they feel seen, they feel listened to, they feel like there's empathy, it allows them to emotionally exhale, move that energy from the right side of the brain to the left side of the brain and bring back healthy processing. That was a really fast example, by the way, or explanation of all that. Yeah, that's interesting because, uh, um, again, I, I, I'm a uh, science nerd in some ways. I love science. Uh, I have a psychology background, a little bit of a psychology background as well. So studying how the brain works with two hemispheres and how, how developmental that you have a cartilage just in between, mm-hmm. that's the reason uh, for females. And mm-hmm. that's the reason why females can can think both sides of the brain at the same time, almost like simultaneously, whereas men cannot because that break, that cartilage is actually broken down uh, by testosterone during development. You have a little bit of that cartilage, but it's not the same as women. So you can't think of both sides. But anyway, that is so, that's fascinating to me uh, from, uh, from that aspect when it comes to empathy and emotionally, because uh, of course for me, and again, this is, again, this is the late nineties, uh, mid to late nineties with, with when I was in middle school and dealing with, uh, depression, uh, suicide, um, almost, almost a dinner doing attempted suicide and go through all those emotions. And part of that had to do with, uh, some of the sin I was involved in it was right before I came to Christ. And that was from a, from a living in a, as a pastor's kid in a very, very good home. Um, dealing with all those emotions. And I just can't imagine with the lack of connectivity and relational, emotional, relational uh, empt that uh, kids don't have today. I just can't imagine what some, some of the kids are going through. I have one student as well, several students that are going that I, that are dealing with this anxiety on a level I've never even seen. Yeah. Um, and I've have, I have one student in particular that I've been discipling um, uh, for the last three years that um, he doesn't have a father. I really in his life. So in a lot of ways, I've been his father figure uh, for the last three years as he's on his way to going to college and just seeing him from going from high anxiety to where he is now. Uh, I can see the empathy part of it because me pushing into him and seeing the change because of that. And that kind of goes into what I want to ask as well is, is what do you do if you believe a student is thinking of hurting themselves or going through all this despair, this depression, uh, this anxiety, and that leads to things like cutting, uh, attempted suicide. What do you do if you believe a student is thinking about doing these things? Yeah. Well, First, I, I, you know, there's kind of two angles I want to take on this. One, I want to go back to that question specifically, and I do want to answer that uh, very, very clearly. But right before I answer that question very, very clearly, I just I want to kind of go a little bit more broad, if that's okay. Because mm-hmm. that question of what do you do, I can go really narrow, but I want to start kind of 20,000 feet if I can. Because you talked about your experience in the 90s. And 
how you were dealing with depression and now that you're seeing a kid deal with anxiety in levels that you've never seen before. And I just want to pause and just make that observation that um, what we experienced if we're, you know, kids that grew up in the 90s or even if we were youth pastors who were youth pastoring in the 90s or early 2000s, what we're experiencing and seeing today in the next generation is not the same as what we grew up or what we've seen. And the reason why is because the tools that we had available to us when we were teenagers growing up or um, the kids of the uh, early 2000s or, or 90s and beyond is that we had more face-to-face interaction. So going back to what you were saying, like, um, you know, we would go after school and go hang out with a buddy. And while you're hanging out with a buddy, you're face to face with him. And you might say, man, I don't know. I just, just don't feel great. Like you might start talking a little bit and your buddy would say, dude, it's okay, man. Maybe they wouldn't know what to say, but they would empathize with you to some degree. And that, that, that face to face interaction and even a little bit of empathy from your middle school friend or from a parent, um, what that does is it influenced our brain and helped us to overcome. It built our resilience up a lot stronger. So we had more of those micro interactions. Fast forward to 2021, and here we are. There's less of those type of interactions. And the thing is, is our brains are hardwired. I mean, hardwired from the moment of creation, hardwired to be face-to-face. So our brains don't know what to do with all this digital stuff, you know, like it doesn't feel that empathy. It doesn't sense that it doesn't see your facial expressions, you know, so it's completely different. You know, we could talk about cyberbullying too, but I don't want to get too lost here. Um, The point is, is that one of the things I realized and uh, actually chapter one of the book, I, I start off talking about old tools is that as a youth pastor, I was using old tools and my tools weren't working. And, um, I thought they would, and they worked at one point and they probably even worked for me as a teenager, but they, they weren't working anymore for, uh, some of these teenagers that we were trying to minister to in today's day and age. And I had to relearn what I thought I knew about connection. I had to relearn what I thought, uh, small group, you know, small groups should look like. And I had to kind of stop. You know, the, this, this phrasing, you maybe have heard it, maybe you've even thought it, you know, this whole like kids are just all up in their feelings. They just need to suck it up, blah, 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 blah. You know, like, and again, I, I get that tension. I felt that tension and at times it can feel so frustrating. And what I realized is my frustration wasn't because they were wrong. It, it, they're, they're just responding. Their brains are responding to the culture that's around them and, and how things have been handed to them. Uh, I realized that I was using the wrong tools and that I needed to rethink how to help this next generation and how to use the the hardwiring and how God's made us the knowledge of that to bring them to healing and use a little bit. Yes, uh, definitely use spiritual tools, um, but I needed to use some practical tools, which, by the way, just happened to also be very spiritual um, as well. But uh but yeah, so I, you know, I had to I had to rethink those tools. But to go back to your your question very specifically, what do we do when a kid is maybe cutting or um, thinking about hurting themselves? Um, well, number one is don't freak out when a kid discloses that uh, they want to hurt themselves. Um, you know, kind of freak out on the inside, but stay calm on the outside, and um, clarify the question. Sometimes, you know. 
question doesn't come clear. Like, are you thinking about hurting yourself? Um, are you uh, planning on hurting yourself? Like, clear some of those like clarifying questions um, can be helpful. When when a kid discloses yes that I am thinking about hurting myself, or even that I have a plan to hurt myself, um, that and the plan to hurt themselves. I mean, both of them are, are very important. But when there, there's a plan it kind of elevates the urgency for sure. Um, but the second thing is, is how we respond. And so stay calm. And the biggest thing is how we respond in that moment. Oftentimes what we want to do is we want to start trying to make them feel better, right? We want to tell them all the reasons why they should feel uh, better about their life. You know, we want to say, but you know, Jimmy, you got, I don't know why I said Jimmy. Jimmy just seems like a great name. Um, <laughs> Uh, Jimmy, you know, you got all these things to live for. You know, why would you want to hurt yourself? I mean, God loves you. I love you. Your cat loves you. Maybe. Okay. Your dog loves you, right? We want to go through the whole list of, of all the reasons why they shouldn't feel the way that they feel. Um, but oftentimes what ends up happening when we try to talk them out of their feelings in that moment, what we're doing unintentionally is, uh, dismissing their feelings, number one. And number two, uh, the thought processes uh, can go in their brain kind of like, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't feel this way, but I do feel this way. See, I am broken. And now it's guilt and shame cycle. You see that? So the, the best response in those moments isn't trying to tell them all the reasons why they shouldn't feel the way they feel, but to simply say, I'm so sorry that you feel that way. And I just want you to know I love you. Thank you for sharing that with me. Like all of those phrases are essentially saying, I like I hurt because you hurt. That's empathy, right? Um, the second phrase is I love you. That's affirmation. And uh, the third one is, is another kind of affirmation, a gratitude of like, thank you for trusting me, right? It's a trust building phrase. So to really just kind of see them in that moment, to connect right where they are. And then after you kind of, you know, have a little bit of dialogue between you just seeing them and empathizing, letting them know that you, you love them, period, that you love them. Um, the next step would be to get help. Like, so when it elevates to that level of, um, I have plans to hurt myself, you definitely want to get help. So in every, um, you know, every state has different, you know, protocols, but for the most part, the um, crisis hotline is going to be your best bet. You know, you can, um, you know, Google crisis hotline, there's a texting feature as well in, in many areas. Um, but definitely get help. Uh, it may be a report as well, uh, depending on your state laws. So you, you want to take further action to, uh, to make sure that that a kid who is thinking and having suicide ideation, that there are some next steps and talk them through that talk them through like, you know, hey, you know, I need to, to make some phone calls and we need to do this together. Um, but it's for your own safety because we want to make sure we get you the best help we can. Um, but when, when it doesn't get to that level, you know, what do you do if you have a kid that's just like self-harming and maybe parents already know about it? Maybe, the, you know, the, the counselor is already determined it's not necessarily suicide ideation. There is a little bit of a different, you know, thing there. Uh, in our book scene, we kind of talk through that a little bit more. Chin Wei does a great job of um, really listing out what self-harm is and how to uh, respond to that. But the best way to respond to any of these issues, whether it's anxiety, despair, um, self-harm, 
is to really make sure that on a consistent basis, we're helping kids to feel seen and deeply connected. Because over time, time over time, those tools and the tools that we list out in the book actually promote healing and help decrease despair and um, really make a big difference in terms of connection. I, I, I would have to wholeheartedly agree with that. And um, the reason why I'm speaking personally, uh, even in my own life, and again, it was way different back in the 90s, like we just discussed earlier when it comes to um, how we relate relationally. Uh, there was a whole lot more of a, of a relational community um, and, uh, before the invention of the smartphone, all that. But even then, it, it actually took a group of people, of teens, along with adults, pouring into me in order for me to start making uh, some changes in my own life and, ha- and started seeing things I need to change when it comes to depression, and some other things as well. So I, I agree with that. But affirmation, empathy, um, and that kind of ties and makes me think of something else as well. That I think COVID in some ways uh, has exposed in a good way within church is that um, I think specifically in student ministry, we, we have a tendency of, of being too overly programmed and sometimes not enough relationally driven um, in a sense that, uh, like for instance, every, 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 if you look at youth ministry in the last 30, 40 years, it's pretty much the same exact thing. You have a big, big, large lesson. It may have looked different in each decade. Um, you had worship, or, uh, it may look different in, in various decades and games, again, different various decades. The only thing that may be a little bit new in the last 10 to 20 years is maybe the, the implementation of small groups after a large group. Uh, so that we're so been so rigid doing the same exact thing for the last 40, 40 years, 40 years or more, actually, if you look, look throughout the church, um, that we have, we kind of think we have a tendency of losing ourselves into it and not really focus on what's more important, which is actually one-on-one relationship with students, small groups and small group leaders and and diving into relationships. I think COVID actually exposed that when all that was left during COVID was just the relational part of ministry. Yeah. And that is one thing that I am thankful. Again, COVID was awful. When we were on, it was awful. I have friends who've passed away, family members who passed away from it. Awful. But the positive thing with the church is it has specifically student ministry gotten us back to what's more important. Yeah. Uh, which is one-on-one relationship with students, build a relationship, discipleship, uh, which is way more important in the long run. Uh, I believe that there's going to be more uh, fruit from that than so focused on programs and having the biggest events, the, uh, the biggest speakers, the music, the band, the live smoke machines. The relationship is going to, what's going to produce the most fruit. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think the... Uh... The desire among teenagers has changed as well. And mm-hmm. so the felt needs have completely changed. You know, I think one of the, uh, the most humbling things that happened to us youth pastors was that none of our digital programming actually worked during the mm-hmm. pandemic, mm-hmm. <laughs> like nationwide, like it just didn't work. Nobody nope. was killing it. Nobody. And if you're listening to this and you think you killed it, okay, I'll stand corrected. But very few, I'll say, very few student ministries and student pastors were able to really kind of get kids in the Zoom world. And there was so quickly, we ran into that whole Zoom fatigue and it just didn't work. And it didn't work because it's not what their their hearts needed. It wasn't the felt need. 
the felt need was connection. The felt need was hanging out. Like uh, I used to think as a student pastor, like hanging out was wasted time. Um, you know, I'm like, we got a program every minute, you know? <laughs> and now I realize I'm like, oh my goodness, I had that wrong like 10 years ago. You know, hanging out is the thing. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the best thing that we can do, especially when we're intentional with that though. I mean, I do mm-hmm. think we have to be intentional with hanging out. Um, and adult leaders are a key piece to that. So when we train up our adult leaders to really use connection tools and to help kids that feel seen, and you really, you know, have a, a, I would say training up adults to be kind of connection agents is probably the best thing that we can do in student ministry now, more than anything, Mm -hmm. better than your messages. Stop spending, okay, I'm going to get on a rant. Stop spending 50% of your time developing your stinking messages. It's not that important. In the long run, it is not that important. You want to know why? Because no one's going to remember it. Want to know why? Because I don't remember what I spoke last week, you know? So if you don't remember it, I don't remember it. They're not going to remember it. Let the Bible be the timeless truth. Give them the applications, but then let somebody face-to-face really help bring that scripture to life. So leading your small group leaders, recruiting small group leaders, and training them like crazy is the most important thing that you can do in student ministry. I know we're going on a little bit of rabbit trail, so I'm just, I'm just going to follow it a little bit longer. But you're you're speaking my language when it comes to to large group messages. Um, it has its purpose. It's, it's some good around it. But I'm 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 total agreement and like minded like you. It the kids don't remember what you say. You want you want them to remember. They don't remember what you say. Uh, they they remember the funny moments. They remember maybe the jokes some of the jokes, but other than the message, they don't remember. What they remember is re- the relationships. That's yeah. what they remember. I, I'm using my own example. I don't remember a single message or topic-wise that my, my youth pastor spoke on, but I remember all the relationships I had with leaders pouring in my life. Yeah. And that those moments, um, I remember all that, but I don't remember anything when it comes to messages-wise. Uh, so I, to- I totally agree with you. and, and I think I think in youth ministry, and this tie kind of ties into this as well with with being intentional and pouring into to teens relationally, which is what they need and what they're lacking in their culture today because they're in front of a screen. That's what that where they see is is they're in front of a screen. So you got to be a whole lot more intentional relationally with students now. Um, and stop and as a youth pastor, we need to stop focusing on things that don't necessarily matter. And the scheme of students, yeah, and focus on what really matters and developing them in their faith and, and closer to God, also relationship and community with each other and the, the way God designed us to be. Yeah, um, so I absolutely agree with that. And that kind of leads to what I next thing I want to ask is is what are some practical things that youth leaders and youth pastors can do to ha- help teens heal? Because this is a real problem in our culture today with anxiety, depression, despair. But what can we practically do to help them? So that's a great question. And, you know, I think once we have like a small group ministry of some sort, because that's, that's important. If you have more than eight kids in your, your student ministry, you need another small group leader because you can't connect with and follow the stories of, you know, more than eight people pretty much. Um, so we need to empower small group leaders to do some things. And we ne- ourselves need to do some things differently, especially when kids are dealing with despair and anxiety. And um, 
And, you know, through our, our book, we, we provided like five really practical tools and we explain these in depth, but these tools, and I'm going to highlight them real quick uh, for you guys, but they seem too simple to matter, you know? Um, but when you really dive into how they influence our brains towards healing, um, they're, they're really profound, like, and they're very, very effective. So the first one is to show up. And that one almost seems like the obvious one, but you just got to show up. You got to show up consistently. You have to show up before they ask you to. Um, you have to show up even when it's inconvenient, you know? So, uh, you know, I still believe, so let me backtrack on my, my message speaking thing. Um, I do believe that retreats and camps are still very helpful. Um, and so there should be messages in those contexts, but for the week to week stuff, you know, keep it to 10 minutes, 15 minutes and prioritize the small groups. But, um, but for instance, when we go on a retreat or a camp, chances are, you know, kids are going to open up, especially teenagers. They love opening up at like midnight, right? <laughs> um, it's inconvenient for us as adults. Like, man, once I hit past 30, I was like, ah, midnight is terrible. Like, um, by 2 AM, I just want to hurt somebody cause I'm tired, <laughs> you know, but we have to show up even when it's inconvenient. They're, they're gonna, you know, contemplate life's deepest questions, you know, late at night. And, uh, and we have to be willing to press in and show up in those, in those moments, even when it's inconvenient for us. And the reason why is because when we show up, especially when we show up consistently, that is the best way to communicate love. You know, if we, um, if we remember like through when a kid deals with crisis, right? We, we've maybe heard this phrase like um, the, uh, the ministry of presence, right? There's something about being present when somebody's dealing with crisis. And the reason why is because just your very presence communicates love. It communicates value. It communicates a priority. So when we show up, kids feel loved. Um, the second thing that we need to do, we need to see them. And what I mean by this is to see beyond the behavior, see beyond the words or the attitude. We have to see on a deep level. The way, um, now that you kind of heard the right brain, left brain kind of analogy, uh, easy way to remember this is meet right brain with right brain and left brain with left brain. Um, so when a, a kid is like emotionally just upset, like instead of logically trying to tell them why they shouldn't feel that way, just simply say, um, oh man, you failed your test? Oh, I'm so sorry about that. That must be be really disappointing. You must feel really disappointed. I do feel disappointed. Tell me more. Tell me about it, right? You're just meeting right brain with right brain. Now in the back of your head, you're thinking, bro, we talked about this last week. You failed your other test because you keep studying or you keep, instead of studying, you keep playing uh, Fortnite when you should be doing it. Your mom's been on your case. Like you've been grounded because of this. You need to just get your act together, right? You want to logically say all that. But as a youth leader, as a small group leader, like we just got to hold back, meet right brain with right brain, and then bring the logical processing after you've had that emotional exhale. So that's when you see them, right? Otherwise, you don't see them. And what they feel is they feel like you don't understand. And I can tell you time and time and time again, where I've made that mistake. And, uh, I've had a kid even tell me like, you just don't get it. You don't get me, you know, <laughs> I'm like, sorry, I'm trying to, uh, but it was because I didn't see them on a deep level that that was the issue. Um, so when we, when we see them, um, kids feel understood, right? I mean, they feel understood on a deep level. Uh, so we have to show up, we have to see them and then we have to just listen. 
um, just listen, active listening, mirroring um, their emotions, you know, so be mindful of your tone, be mindful of your questions. My favorite two phrases for, um, uh, for just listening is tell me more. And um, I actually can't remember the other one. So just let's go with tell me more. Uh, you know, just tell me more. That's simply it. The other one might come to me later. Um, but uh, yeah, just it, that simple phrase, by the way, when you say tell me more, um, you're inviting a kid to emotionally exhale, right? You're, you're allowing them to, to have space to just um, share more and, and allow them to just, um, I remember what the second phrase was, by the way. Here we go. It's, uh, I can see that you feel blank. And that uh, is, is kind of another setup to just listening. You know, like I, I did it in the, the first example of, I can see that you feel disappointed from failing your test. Um, so you're, you're acknowledging an, an emotion. Um, and with just listening, by the way, oftentimes, uh, sometimes you'll have a kid say, like, I just feel stupid. Um, and what I do in those moments is I try to help them to differentiate the difference between a belief and an emotion. Stupid isn't an emotion. Stupid is a belief, right? So, so break that down a little bit more. Like, you know, maybe you feel embarrassed. Maybe you feel discouraged, right? So helping them kind of uh, exhale a little bit and then listen. Like I said, like, I can see that you feel embarrassed. Tell me more, right? So those two phrases um, are my favorite two phrases when it comes to just listening. And the reason why this is important is because when we are making eye contact and we're listening and we're, we're mindful of our tone and we're inviting um, this continued conversation, uh, kids feel safe over time. Like we feel safe when we feel like we're, we're deeply understood. Um, and then those, those three tools there, show up, see them, just listen, really set you up for this, this next tool. And the problem is sometimes I found, at least for myself, is I jumped to this, this fourth tool and it was kind of my number one tool. And, uh, and as a pastor, I think, you know, we, at least I did, but I think we tend to lean on this one a little bit heavy. Um, but there was a reason why it's number four. And those other tools show up, see them, just listen, really set you up to then be able to, number four, speak life. That's where we start to speak truth over them, right? And help reframe some things. Those are all good things. Um, saying things like, I'm proud of you, you're amazing, and you're so smart, you're talented. I mean, those are you know simple things, but you can go deeper than that. But when we do that, when we speak life, we're really kind of unwiring some negative voices. Kids are inundated with negative voices. And so we're able to kind of start to repair some of that, that negativity. And, uh, and then the last one is, so when we speak life, they feel worthy, they feel value. Uh, the last one is to build grit. And um, this is where we, we really help them to deal with like negative thoughts and help them to try to build some resilience to negative emotions. And how to, again, when you start to feel this, how do we process this in a different way? But, but once again, I want to pause and say, these last two phrases or tools are really important, but it's important to this sequence that we have to first allow emotional exhale before we can really speak life and help them build grit. At the end of the day, when we help them build grit, they feel empowered. Well, well, uh, if somebody want to get in contact with you, 
uh, either to learn more about this process or more about your uh, the book scene, what's the best way to get contact with you? So the scenebook.com, the T-H-E scene, S-E-E-N book.com is the best way to find more and uh, hear more about Chin Wei and I and um, even uh, find all the links to where you can pick up the book. Well, well, I want to thank you for taking your time to come on the podcast today. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for uh, allowing me to come and share a little bit about connection. Well, guys, I'm very thankful for for Will and his heart to tackle this issue and along with his, um, his co-author, Dr. Chinway, uh, both of them tackling this issue because it, it is really important. I, I, we've talked about depression, anxiety. We've talked about social anxiety mental health a lot on this podcast uh and the reason why we talk about it a lot because it really is a problem uh, and it really is a deep issue that sometimes uh at least in my context of, of doing ministry where i'm at it, it's not addressed a, a, enough in ministry and it, again it's, and it's sometimes blown off as just being hey pick up your bible read your bible more hey uh, go pray more. And it's just, we give a lot of churchy and Christianese answers, uh, which a lot of it's, there's there's a connection point. And Dave, you said this earlier in the intro, there is a connection point sometimes with those, these things. But uh, in reality, some people do struggle on a different level and we need to meet that mental illness where, where it's at mm-hmm. instead of trying to beat around the bush and completely just throw it underneath the rug. Yeah, I think... Um... This conversation will help for two reasons. One, uh, I think one of the things that's going to help just in general is the more we talk about it, the more it becomes part of a normal, everyday conversation for ministry, um, the easier it's going to become to help because we'll actually make it not as uncomfortable as it used to be. And the other reason I think it's going to help is because this is going to help normalize the idea of taking a both-and approach. Uh, towards helping with these issues, uh, the both and being, you know, the truths and principles from scripture and the spiritual disciplines, along with um, the help that can come from psychology and counseling and uh, medicine if necessary. Um, one of the things that uh, has helped me uh, when I did my counseling degree in seminary was recognizing that uh, as much as we like to call it secular psychology, um, there are things that have been learned about the human brain and about how we're wired and our physiology, but also our uh, our brain, mentally speaking. Um, and having an approach that takes the truths from scripture, but also the reality of the way that we've been built and the way that those things can backfire or misfire um, and melding those two things together, I think moving forward is gonna help a lot uh, when it comes to the church helping, especially teenagers with mental health and, and issues like that. No, I, I absolutely agree. And, and again, I think I've shared on the podcast in the past, but uh, dealing with the anxiety and depression uh, is even part of my past. Uh, when I was in, at a middle schooler uh, struggling with suic- suicidal thoughts, um, a lot of it had to do with, with the sin I was involved in uh, at the time. And a lot of it had is very much tied to that. Yep. But I tell I tell teens all the time is that I, I don't, if I had a smartphone to y'all at, at age 12, 13, and 14, 15, uh, I don't know where I would be at. 
if, if I had a, I, I really <laughs> I, I really don't know where I'd be at. And a lot of it has to do with is that again I, I had so uh, much mental struggles. And again, I, I grew up in a great home and great home life, and I was a preacher's kid, and I heard the gospel constantly, and my parents did an awesome job in that respect, and it had nothing to do with them. Um, it had just had to do with myself being a loner and some other things wrapped in that as well. Uh, but I just can't imagine what teens deal with nowadays when it comes to technology and how that feeds into lots of anxiety and depression and despair. Um, I just, I, for me as a youth pastor, sometimes it's very hard to wrap my mind around how to properly minister to students who are struggling um, in these areas. Yeah. And to be honest with you, I, I would say um, us, us being the ones who are supposed to be the mature adults um, in the situation, uh, I, I know my own struggles with a smartphone. Uh, and uh, the the temptation to just scroll the Instagram reels or uh, just flick through the next new thing on whatever social media app you're using and and be stuck doing that for like an hour or two that's a strong temptation there and if I have if I'm supposed to be the one that has the emotional capacity and maturity to, to prevent myself from doing that and I still find it tempting uh, you know who lo- who knows how strong of a pull that is for a teenager who's still developing in that mode so um, I definitely think this conversation is going to be helpful for you guys uh, moving forward. And uh, we do want to thank you again. Uh, we're glad to be back, but thank you for listening to our podcast today. Uh, thank you for sticking with us and, and patiently waiting for a couple of months while we laid low on this end. And uh, if you haven't yet, uh, please take a minute to look through our back catalog and listen to some of the episodes you may have missed. Um, and please leave a comment and a star review on Apple Podcasts. That would be fantastic because... Uh, not only does that help us uh, know, you know, that we're doing well, um, but it would also help us keep our content near the top of the search results so that youth workers who are out there looking for help can find it easily. Uh, and if there's a topic you'd like to hear us cover on the podcast that we haven't hit yet, uh, or maybe something that we need to go back and rehash because COVID has blown all of the stuff out of the water that was previously true, um, please reach out to us. We have our Facebook page. Uh, we're on Instagram as well, and uh, we're, hey, we have a Facebook group, the Youth and Culture Facebook group, uh, where if you're a youth worker, a volunteer, full-time, part-time, doing it for free, doing it because you love it, doesn't matter, uh, join the group, become part of the community. Uh, Ryan and I are both in there. We'd love to engage with you guys and answer any questions you have, uh, and we'd really appreciate uh, connecting with you guys there. Well, guys, stay tuned for our next episode.